0: Welcome to another episode of Doctor Doctor, the
1: radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, and I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective.
0: Doctor Doctor is now the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association to which Chris and I belong, and we and the rest of the members are dedicated to pulling the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and the practice of Medicine. Today, our special guest will be Dr. Michael Farquh, a cardiologist from Toronto, who is going to talk to us about some uh, big ideas uh, and a potpourri of ideas about cardiovascular health, a new ABC of cardiology today. But first, we're going to look at some recent medical news. And an item that I chose from uh, my area of expertise in dermatology is a new study out in the journal OncoTarget. I bet you've seen that one in your doctor I'm offices. sure most of our <laughs> listeners uh,
1: you know, read that journal regularly. I had never heard
0: of it until I heard about this article, OncoTarget, and this study was done in, of all places, Australia, which has the highest rate of skin cancer in the world, which happens when you take a fair skin population from the British Isles and transfer it close to the equator. Well, what they did is a study to see if there is a blood test to find if you have melanoma confined to your skin. Not spread throughout the body, just confined to your skin. And it would be really nice if we had a, an early way to signal that, especially in people who have had melanomas or are at risk for melanoma more than others. So they did this test where they took a serum, which is blood without the blood cells, from 245 melanoma patients. And they also took it from some healthy volunteers. And they looked at over 1,600 normal proteins to see what proteins the melanoma patients had made antibodies against. And after doing this big test and this big statistical analysis, what they found was that if they chose a certain group of 10 antibodies to 10 proteins, those people were more likely to have melanoma. In fact, if they did this test, to these ten proteins, they found 79% of people with melanoma would have had their melanoma discovered just by the blood test.
1: Well, I mean that would be a public health dermatologic sort of coup, wouldn't it, to be able to do a simple blood test and say you're about to get melanoma, or you have it, or you actually you actually you have, have, it have
0: melanoma. So, and then it was 84% if the test was negative, then there was no melanoma there. So. When they did the blood tests from people known to have melanoma and those known not to have melanoma, they found about 80 percent of it when it was there and 80 percent of the time when they said it wasn't there, it wasn't there. So this is a good start. We like those numbers to be higher, but 80 percent is a really good start. And Chris is right. They hope to make this into a routine population screening test.
1: So Tom, like any cancer, uh, isn't melanoma much more survivable If we catch it early.
0: That is absolutely right. In fact, if you catch it when it's in the top layer of skin alone where it starts, the cure rate is virtually 100%. It cannot spread when it's only in the epidermis, the top layer of skin, because there's no blood vessels there.
1: Let's do a little myth-busting on sun and melanoma. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So true or false, damage to my forearm by the sun is not likely to cause melanoma on my forearm.
0: False that
1: it is likely to cause melanoma on your forearm. And differences between malignant melanoma and the other more common skin cancers. Um, what what could our listeners take away on? Well, melanoma is the one that's most likely going to follow the ABCDs: asymmetrical,
0: irregular borders, multiple colors, diameter typically uh, increasing or bigger than a pencil eraser in size. But that's the one that looks like the weird-looking moles, whereas the other cancers, basal cell and squamous cell, they're usually clear, red, purplish, but rarely do they have pigment in them. Plus, the melanoma often grows um, faster and is most likely to spread and most likely to cause death.
1: Wow. So uh, we live here in uh, lovely northeastern Indiana where the sun doesn't shine quite as often as it does in Australia. But as a dermatologist, what do you see in terms of malignant melanoma? Is this something that you encounter commonly?
0: Oh, it's one of the three skin cancers are the most rapidly increasing forms of cancer that there are. Why? Because of our behaviors. I mean, where else in the world do you get fair-skinned people taking off most of their clothes uh, in the sun? Uh, People that live close to the equator generally wear long-flowing clothing, Uh, but not us. Not us in America. Uh, Although Australia is getting much better. They're way ahead of us. Uh, They've got their uh, slip, slop, slap campaign. You know, slip (laughs) on a shirt, uh, slap on a hat, and slop on some sunscreen before you're allowed to go outside to recess. They have covered areas for schools to have recess. Even their national sports teams, for instance, soccer, rugby, they practice early in the morning or in the evening Mm. to
1: prevent being outside in the midday. Interesting. Well, I mean, in Australia or otherwise, it's something as simple as a blood test uh, that could stop a, really a devastating disease. Wouldn't that be fabulous? That would be great. So uh, you are listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. And now we are off to Chris's health tip of the day. Well, we're going to continue with the theme of sun and warm, I suppose. Because as we enter into the fall season, many of our listeners are going to start thinking about planning cool weather vacations to warmer weather places. And very often that involves the Caribbean for most of us in Northeastern Indiana, South Florida, or even further south. So I wanna talk a little bit about Zika virus and uh, update and make sure that our listeners really feel comfortable because there's so much out there that it gets very confusing. So let's remember, Zika virus is spread in four ways. One, by mosquito bites from infected mosquitoes. Two, sexual intercourse with someone who is infected. Three, a blood transfusion with tainted blood. And four, from a pregnant woman to her fetus. Now Zika infection during pregnancy can cause severe birth defects in the baby, including a condition called microcephaly, where the head is very, very small, mental retardation, blindness, hearing problems, and a whole host of other neurological abnormalities. Does that happen in the United States? Ah, you're getting ahead of me. Stand by. I'll get to that.
0: All right. Sorry about that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A study that was just recently released by the Centers for Disease Control revealed that nearly one in seven babies born to women who are themselves infected with the Zika virus while pregnant uh, will have health problems from the virus. Now, why six out of seven of those babies do not it isn't really clear. It may be that we just need to study those children longer to see if they develop problems, or they may have some type of immunity that the children who are infected are affected uh, don't seem to have, but that's still really unclear. Most adults infected with the Zika virus have no symptoms, uh, or they really only have mild symptoms, like a low-grade fever or a headache or some body aches, like most of us might feel with a simple viral infection. Um, The last known local transmission, to your question, of Zika virus in the continental U.S. occurred in late 2017, uh, with two cases in Florida and five in Texas. Now, that was in 2017. Uh, But there have been no transmission in the continental U.S. in 2018, according to the CDC. But there's been 74 cases of Zika virus reported in U.S. territories. Really, all of those were in Puerto Rico. So here's some takeaway points for our listeners when it comes to Zika virus. One, if you're planning on travel uh, and you're going south, you need to figure out if your destination involves Zika virus. To do that, you'll want to go to the CDC's website. It's very friendly, easy to use, and the information changes on a pretty regular basis. In quick terms, it's Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, North and Central America. That's a lot of popular vacation destinations. So isn't it South America also? Because I thought I heard it in the news initially with Brazil. Yes, it is South America also, uh, South and Central America. Uh, Two, if you're traveling to an affected area, mosquito bite prevention uh, is absolutely essential. So sunscreen and mosquito repellent. (laughs) Uh, Number three, the most common symptom of Zika virus is a fever as well as a rash, joint pain, body aches, and a headache. And these symptoms usually last about seven to 10 days. Four, those with a Zika virus infection must not spread it sexually. Specifically, men are at risk to transmit it for three months after their symptoms begin and women are at risk to transmit it about two months after their symptoms began. Five in a couple who desires pregnancy, and this is where it comes up most in my practice, if a couple wants to be pregnant and one or both of them have been uh, in an affected area, they should abstain from sexual intercourse for at least three months after their travel uh, and prevent mosquito bites when they get back home so that they don't infect local mosquitoes. Uh, so it used to be six months of abstinence after returning from an affected area. The CDC's now changed that to three months. Uh, and then lastly, if a pregnant woman feels she may have been infected, she should immediately contact her health care provider and arrange special testing. Now, I will say, um, in all of the CDC language, it doesn't say abstain from sexual intercourse. It says use condoms. <laughs> since we are Catholic and we follow the teachings of our <laughs> Holy Church, I don't say that to patients. I point out that it's there, but I say abstain from sexual intercourse. And condoms wouldn't be... anyway. It's not with any other virus. Absolutely not. So they would be immoral and ineffective. Ineffective. What a combination. (laughs) But that's all the news that is the news on Zika virus. Good old Zika virus. Well, before we go to our
0: break, I will pose our medical trivia question of the day. Here's something a little more creative. Listen closely. In the five-year period from the middle of 2012 to the middle of 2017, internet searches for the term basal cell carcinoma peaked on five different week long periods. This is what happens when a
1: co-host is a dermatologist.
0: <laughs> yes, yes it is. But what happened? on or around November 21st 2013, May 9th 2014, October 27 2014, May 6 2015, February 8 2016, and February, 13th 2017. There were peak periods of internet searches, uh, according to Google Analytics, that were 50 to 150% above baseline searches during the weeks following those dates. What is it that happened during those six dates, I'm sorry, it wasn't five, it was six dates, that greatly increased interest in basal cell carcinoma and because i'm merciful i'm going to give you a clue the answer can be found at the intersection of two very separate movie enterprises the marvel x-men series of movies and the movie despicable me too the answer to the question is actually spoken in despicable me too by lucy Wilde. that's Gru's wife for those of you keeping track at home before she is deployed to Australia, which is a link back to my article about melanoma screening. So if you know the answer, just yell it out to anybody in your shot and start your bragging now. Otherwise, stay tuned for the end of the show when you'll hear the answer. Otherwise, we're going to take a break and come back with our guest. Well, we're back with our guest for an interview today on the ABCs or some new ABCs of heart disease, alcohol, big cities, chelation therapy, and even some other things related to the government and. We'll see how much time we have. But our guest is Dr. Michael Farquh. He's professor and vice chair of research at the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. He's the Peter Monk chair of multinational clinical trials at the Peter Monk Cardiac Center. He's director of the Heart and Stroke Center of Excellence in cardiovascular research. And he did a cardiology fellowship here in the States at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. Michael, welcome to Dr. Doctor.
2: Thank you very much for having me, Tom.
0: You know, Michael, why is heart disease such an important topic today?
2: Well, I think heart disease, obviously, over the past decades, has been the number one killer. And uh, this is, I I think, has been going on for the past 50 or 60 years, not only in the United States, but globally. Uh, I think as people have, as we've had lower incidence of infection and better hygiene and public health, people have lived longer And as they live longer, they are prone to developing heart disease, which includes diseases of the coronary artery and diseases of the heart valves and the heart muscle itself. And so we are seeing more and more of this uh, as people live longer.
0: And is heart disease just one part of what's called cardiovascular disease?
2: That's right. There's the heart and then all of the arteries that come off of the heart, including the main artery, the aorta and the vessels that provide blood to the brain and to the lower limbs. So the cardiovascular system uh, involves more than the heart. And in the last several years, we've defined that many syndromes are related with other organ systems, the interaction of the heart with the liver, with the kidney, and, of course, with the brain. So the heart cardiovascular system really is a major part of our bodies.
0: Well, I've even learned recently, being a dermatologist, that patients with psoriasis are at increased risk for heart disease.
2: That's right. And in the case of psoriasis and other inflammatory arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, these syndromes are associated with a greater incidence of heart disease. We believe that inflammation in general not only um, wreaks havoc on those systems in the joints and the skin but also can uh, involve um, a process whereby there's increasing atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries because of inflammation inside the blood vessels and that interaction has now quite well described and some of the therapies that we have for these syndromes like psoriasis actually may have benefits in on the heart as well
1: well so Michael are we really talking about a disease of Affluence? You know, or is, it, uh, is it the well developed countries uh, like ours, or is this a problem in poorer nations across the world as well?
2: Well, that's a great question. I, I think that um, because of life expectancy and, and threats from other processes, including violence, war, and, and of course infection, uh, we haven't realized how big of a problem cardiovascular disease is in low and middle income countries. What we have documented in the last several decades, is the rising incidence of cardiovascular risk factors. For example, in uh, eastern Africa, the incidence of hypertension is three or four times what it is in the United States. Uh, And that, of course, leads to stroke and heart disease. But we haven't seen it until recently when we saw that folks were moving from rural communities to bigger cities in these countries as they saw it, you know, moving from more of a farming and rural existence to more of living in large cities. And we're now seeing uh, an increasing prevalence of heart disease in these countries, which is really alarming because. We don't think we can afford to treat everyone with heart disease. We need to prevent heart disease. Mm. And, and I think that has come about because of our focus on low- and middle-income countries.
0: Well, let's move on to the, the ABCs. You, you touched on one, but let's go back to A. A is for alcohol in this interview. When I heard you speak at yeah. the Unite to Cure conference at the Vatican, y- you mentioned a relationship between alcohol and heart disease that is different than the relationship between alcohol and cancer. Could you describe that?
2: Yeah yeah so for for a long time, um, many know that maybe even their doctors tell them you can have a uh, drink of red wine, particularly red wine is thought to be protective and that came from evidence from France where folks that drink a lot of red wine had a lower incidence of heart disease. We think that it may be related to other factors such as diet and genetics. but um, it took a popular, uh, it took on a popular theme uh, across the world where people thought a drink or two a night would be protective. And lo and behold, as we've looked at epidemiologic studies, we've seen that moderate alcohol use has been associated with some cardio protection, protection of, from heart disease. So at the highest risk of heart disease are in those that drink a lot. That's more than 14 drinks in a week. and um, But yet people who don't drink it at all may have somewhat of an increased incidence of heart disease. Now, we don't know if this is due to what we call confounding, because it could be that because people have a drink, they're less stressed, they relax more, they have more time for leisure, um, they're able to have, be less anxious. And so it's, it's still hotly debated, but clearly from a cardiovascular perspective, a drink or two, a few drinks uh, a week, uh, up to about seven to eight drinks a week, Uh, has been associated with some cardio protection. Unfortunately, when we think of the whole body as people are aging for cancer, there's a direct linear relationship with alcohol consumption and cancer, particularly of the gastrointestinal system leading right from the oral to the mouth down to the esophagus, stomach, colon, and rectum. There is a greater incidence of cancer as people drink more and more. And so what we're telling our folks now is if they have a history of cancer in the family, they should really try to refrain from alcohol. If they have a history of heart disease, a few drinks here and there probably is, is safe. So that's the paradox of alcohol, but I do think in the next 10 years, alcohol will begin to be described the way that we describe smoking or fifteen years ago, wow. there is a direct linear relationship, and it's not what people want to hear. No. But the data <laughs> on cancer is very strong.
1: Michael, that is fascinating. Um, it feels like we should sort of pause for a moment of silence. <laughs> yes,
2: <for> a- <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. Well, well, you know, there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of restaurants now are serving you know sparkling water. Um, uh, the consumption of sparkling water, non-alcoholic beverages, is increasing people are becoming aware of this and the reason that we became aware of this is the interaction not just of heart disease but how risk factors affect chronic disease like cancer like diabetes like alzheimer's and there is a link as well as you know tom from when we were medical school uh... to where we would um... we would see that people who drink a lot actually may be prone to having dementia and so on so there is alcohol is a factor that I don't think we fully understand, but the public health evidence is increasing and emerging now that it is a risk as well.
0: Well, well, let's move on to the B of ABC, and that is big cities. You started to touch on that with Africa. Why is it that urbanization, moving to big cities, has a bad effect on the heart?
2: Yeah, there are multiple reasons for this, multiple mechanisms. The first and foremost is that people become more sedentary. They're not as active. They're not working in the field, more alcohol, (laughs) walking, and and they may drink more alcohol. But the idea is that they're not as active. That's number one. Number two is their diet changes because they have access to fast foods, high fat foods, high carbohydrate food is probably even worse than high fat. Uh, We can touch on that later. Yes. Uh, But the idea is their diet changes to one that's not as heart healthy. The third reason is because in high urban centers, there's more small particle pop, uh, pollution. And these small particles have been linked to inflammation of the arterial wall of the arteries and of the heart and probably of the joints and skin as well. So they're linked to inflammation, which we talked about earlier in the show. Yes. And, uh, and for that reason, we think those are three of the most important mechanisms.
0: Now, one other thing that is happening more as time goes on, besides urbanization, is people are many, spending more time on screens and less time with their, quote, friends. Is there any, yes. any research done on the effect this might have on heart disease?
2: Well, we know it has an effect on health in general. Uh, we have not done the studies yet to link activities of, of being alone, working in front of a screen, anti, you know, lack of socialization. I think there is indirect mechanisms for this because of hormones and, and, and other factors in the blood that may be more favorable when you, you're, you're interacting with others, you're feeling wanted, you're feeling recognized, and probably there are mechanisms there, but we haven't studied that yet, but it, it d- does lead to the link with sedentary behavior. Sure. So if you're in front of a screen and, you know, we have a saying now that sitting is the new smoking, we talked <laughs> about alcohol, but sitting around is is very deleterious to health, and we just are working on a study right now uh, in the cardiovascular community showing that if people exercise at night, they can overcome the negative effects of sitting all day at their office. Mm. But, you know, sitting is a, a real dangerous thing, and you can see people now having their re-engineering of their office where they stand up at a desk and they spend more time on the... Uh, uh, on their feet. And, and I actually, um, for most parts of the year, hold my meetings by walking around the block with people. So if it's not <laughs> a confidential man. meeting, I'll, or with a patient, but with a colleague or a science meeting, I'll take people and we go for a walk. And it's amazing just to change the way we do business. So that, that's another, that's a major factor.
1: Let's move on. I mean, I think I'm still stunned about cities bad, alcohol bad, uh, the story's got to get better here in a second. But let's move on to this, <laughs> the C of the ABC, chelation therapy. Help our, yeah. under, help our listeners understand what exactly are we talking about, about chelation therapy. Well, what but,
2: happened uh, in the 50s and 60s, we had high lead content in fuel. Uh, we, had, um, we were able to, from autopsy specimens, isolate lead, cadmium, and other d- dangerous minerals and toxins that are in the, found in the blood in an industrialized world where we had a lot of, obviously, uh, gasoline consumption, a lot of pollution. And as you know, we changed a lot of the rules for gasoline uh, a a number of years ago with lead-free, lead-free paint and lead-free environments. But that link led investigators many years ago, maybe almost 50 years ago now or more, to study what's called chelation, where we infuse a solution uh, into, the, into, the, into the blood um, through an intravenous uh, technique um, to help leach out these minerals. So this concoction, which is made up of something called EDTA, which is a chemical that helps to bind to these minerals and toxins and remove them from the body. And the theory was that that would then make it less prone for the arteries to become hardened, uh, which we felt was the mechanism, of course, of how atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries develops leads to heart disease, stroke, and uh, circulation problems. And so for many years, we called this alternative medicine. People thought these folks were quacks, right? They were bringing people in and and infusing these solutions uh, with the hope that people who had heart disease or were prone to heart disease would be uh, would have prolonged life and life-free of uh, cardiovascular events.
0: Michael, I would like to there talk about these quacks. This. We need to take a quick break. We'll talk about the sure. quacks or not after the break. You're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio.
1: We're back on Dr. Doctor. Thank you for joining us and our guest, Dr. Michael Farquh from the land of the north in Toronto. And we're talking about some quacks in the theory, you might say.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, um, I've always said, and my patients always approach us to say, you know, can I see a chiropractor? Can I see a naturalist? Can I see all kinds of folks? And I always tell my patients, if it makes you feel better and it makes you healthy, then we have to be open to alternative therapies and no greater example than chelation these folks were maligned uh, they were uh, criticized heavily in the science literature those that practice chelation therapy and so a clinical trial was commissioned about 15 years ago to study the effects of chelation therapy on cardiovascular prevention in high-risk people who had heart, had a heart attack and lo and behold the trial was positive it, It shocked all the investigators. They actually did the trial, trying to dispel (laughs) these therapies. And in fact, they call it the black swan event. They (laughs) revealed the data, and they found that there was indeed a benefit. And in fact, almost all of the benefit was seen in diabetic patients, which was really uh, not a shock because those are patients that have higher risk for cardiovascular disease. And so in order to reaffirm that finding, uh, the National Institutes of Health commissioned a second trial exclusively in diabetics to make sure that this wasn't a statistical fluke, but rather was a real finding. And that trial is ongoing now. It's known as TACT Two. TACT was the first trial, trial of chelation therapy, and TACT Two is on, on, ongoing in the United States and Canada. We've just recruited about 450 of 1,200 patients. Wow. It's being uh, across the United States and Canada in. And a lot of our chelation sites are involved in collaboration with our traditional doctors who are living and working in Ivory Tower universities. <laughs> and we're working together, and we're going to have an answer in a couple of years. And so, hopefully, so um, we the, may have a new therapy. In the patients.
0: first study, how big was the difference, you know, a few years out in those with yeah, diabetes? Yeah, was
2: about a 30% reduction in events.
0: That's um
2: that's which is pretty profound when you think of the number of people with heart disease
0: and how many times um, and did the they curve have
2: separated to over time
0: and how many times did they have to do this chelation therapy
2: Yeah in the it's it's a difficult question and, and one that we had to really nuance but um, it's about a 3 hour infusion once a week for 40 infusions over the course of a year Got it So it's about once a week for 40 weeks uh, in a three-hour infusion. It, people just sit in a, in a cozy, lazy boy, and they, they hang in the bag, and they infuse it in, and people go off. So it, it is time-intensive. Uh, many of the patients are retired. They get to know each other. The socialization <laughs> of being in the study together, and we've seen that. But it really takes tremendous dedication to patients. And I want to say something clear to everyone. All of you who do participate in clinical trials, you really are our heroes because without participation of folks, we'll never get these answers. And these therapies are time and labor intensive, but they all help to open the door to new solutions and new therapies.
1: We would do well to remember, I suppose, that what's alternative today may be mainstream tomorrow.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And, And I think that what we know is high residual risk, meaning even if we give people all the proven therapies, there's still high cardiovascular risk. We haven't solved it. And so studies on influenza vaccination to prevent heart disease, on chelation therapy, uh, on uh, um, new ways of thinking, different types of foods, which we might get into here in a few moments, all of these things may lead to new and uh, novel pathways.
0: So, Michael, put this 30% improvement in perspective. Is there any single medication that would improve heart disease uh, or events as well as this did in the diabetic heart yeah, disease patients? Yeah, well,
2: uh, certainly aspirin versus not taking aspirin if you have heart disease okay. associated with similar effects. Taking cholesterol-lowering drugs known as statin drugs, yes, which are come by the term atorvastatin and maybe Lipitora. There's trade names, Lipitor, Crestor, which people may know from the trade names. Those have also been associated with 30% reduction. But there are not a lot of therapies that are in this range. So because of the disbelief a second study was commissioned (laughs) yes and And um, you can imagine that this would change how we practice i mean it'll change where we deliver care Uh, it'll um, increase the number of infusion centers chelation centers so it it does require proper study in order to change the healthcare system but you know we hold out hope that this may be for the high-risk patients a, a solution
0: Now on to the government. The government says they're here to help us, but are they really? And can you talk about the government's effect on unwittingly increasing heart disease through what was thought to be good public policy?
2: Yeah, well, the greatest example, and I think you're referring to it, Tom, is the issue of uh, in the 1970s when a large study known as Framingham, in Framingham, Massachusetts, where they studied the population in multiple generations, they showed that high cholesterol of the bad cholesterol that your doctors talk about low-density lipoprotein LDL yes. cholesterol was associated with increased cardiovascular disease what they also showed was diets high in saturated fat in meats and in uh, eggs and dairy and so on also increased this bad cholesterol so to their credit there was a public health movement to reduce the consumption of LDL cholesterol what happened however was the big mistake Because what did we go to, and we'll all remember this, all of us that grew up in the 70s, 80s, and so on, is we went to low-fat diets. Yes. But in fact, what did we substitute for low? when we had low-fat diets? We substituted in carbohydrate. And so we increased, reduced the um, intake of fat, but increased the increase of, uh, and to their, because of this public health measure, increased the amount of carbohydrate we consumed and there's only one greater toxin than fat to the body and that's carbohydrate (laughs) because what carbohydrate does and in these complex sugars and these sugary drinks and in uh, all of the sweeteners that we added uh... is that they increase what's called the resistance to insulin which is such an important hormone in your body to regulate weight and metabolism and so what happened is we saw the onset of an epidemic of diabetes that's ensued now over the last twenty years if you look at some states in the United States, diabetes has doubled and tripled over the course of one generation we 've never seen anything like this, this, this it 's almost like it 's an, an infectious disease wow. by the way that it 's uh, just overtaking the population. In fact, two states now are being threatened with bankruptcy because of diabetes that 's Texas and California because of the cost of taking care of people because diabetics they go on to have. Um, weight issues, which leads to osteoarthritis, which leads to the obesity epidemic, diabetes, heart disease, stroke, and so on. And it has become indirectly and, of course, and of course unintentionally, has become one of the nightmares of public health because now we've reverted back. And we're showing now that the, the one thing that's better than a high carbohydrate diet is, in fact, a high fat diet. You can have a steak <laughs> is more healthy than it is to have high carbohydrates. So the low fat diet tra- craze has created a lot of this, and
1: but we, um, it, it we, uh, is caused a problem. When we look back at that uh, at that famous government food pyramid, it was really a carb yeah. fest. Uh, it really made yeah. the meats look evil, and the sugars yes. look positive.
2: Absolutely. So and what we learned, of course, is the word moderate intake um, of of any of these uh, higher fat foods like steaks and eggs and dairy and so on is probably safe it 's everything in moderation um, and but what we did learn is that carbohydrate is toxic to the cardiovascular system
1: mm,
0: Carbs are toxic well. Michael, you're talking about food, and uh, this might be a segue to a future show, but I saw that you recently were an author on an article called Food as Medicine for Secondary Prevention of Cardiovascular Events. So give us a little teaser on this.
2: Well, what we have found is that when people go home from the hospital after having a heart attack, we tell them about all their medications, we tell them to go for a walk, we send them to rehabilitation, but we don't talk about their diet. They're given a pamphlet, they might be lucky enough to have time to visit with a dietitian. But we don't change their diet. And what we have found is that uh, the American Heart has advocated a few types of diet that are heart healthy, like the Mediterranean diet and other forms of uh, diets that are available that allow us to reduce carbohydrate, uh, to have moderate fat intake, which we now know is relatively safe, and high protein. Uh, and these types of diets now, we're getting into the game. So we're saying to the insurance people, you pay for all the drugs, but why don't you pay for someone to have a heart-healthy diet at least for a month so they can learn how to uh-huh. uh, take it and, and learn how to make it at home so that we can change uh, their their course of their disease. And as we've talked about food as a medicine, we don't, we, we're just not there yet. The other thing we've noticed, and I'll say it quickly, is that in places where there's high prevalence of heart disease in cities, there's reduced access to fresh food, fresh produce, and people are isolated and they're buying fast foods because they don't have access to heart healthy foods. uh, And so we're thinking about this as an intervention down the road. And
1: from an economic perspective, it it is so inexpensive to eat poorly. Um, Absolutely. And and so readily available. And
2: and, and I think that we have uh, both by our lifestyle the kinds of demands on our time, and the fact that we want cheap food. uh, We're we're, we're paying for it down the road with these chronic diseases that are Mm -hmm. developing, and we should be helping to prevent it up front.
0: We're down to our last few minutes. What are the key things that our listeners should do to have healthy hearts?
2: I think, first of all, first and foremost, they should know their heart history. They should know their major blood tests of of the measure of diabetes in the blood called uh, hemoglobin a1c and the doctors know this is a way of checking for diabetes should know their bad cholesterol their ldl cholesterol level and be treated accordingly and know their blood pressure to prevent cardiovascular disease the second thing they need to do is that there's no magic bullet the magic bullet is in exercise and diet once you have heart disease or you have diabetes the impact of diet and exercise is not the same as in most of us who are at the bottom of the pyramid, who are at high risk, but we just have, you know, we haven't had the event yet. And these are the, this is where we have to have our public health interventions. We need to walk. It's 150 minutes of exercise a week. So that's about 30 minutes a day, 25 to 30 minutes, go for a walk after dinner, get active, play a sport, socialize and, 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 and be active. Then the second thing, of course, is diet. I would say the Mediterranean type diet, which is more healthy with nuts and fruits and fish. And with the occasional meat is the most, has been proven to be the most heart healthy. But trying to avoid carbohydrates, just check the, the foods uh, that you eat and the cans and so on, and read the amount of sugar that's in these foods and you'll be shocked as to how much we can reduce carbohydrate intake. Drink a lot of water, because water is, I think, one of the greatest things we have for health. And I promote that in my patients. And then, of course, um, understand that, that you're going to live a long life, and you need to take care of yourself and your family and one another. And we really have to focus on the caregivers because so many people are taking care of their elderly folks, people with uh, Alzheimer's, people with heart disease, and we need to take care of the caretakers as well.
0: Dr. Michael Farquh, this was phenomenal. Cardiology researcher from Toronto, Ohio, thank you so much for being with Dr.
2: Doctor today. My pleasure and thanks for having me.
0: We're back with the final segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor with the answer to the trivia question about why is it that between 2012 and 2017 there were six peaks in internet research for basal cell carcinoma, 50 to 150 percent above average. And then on, on those dates what happened can be understood from this dialogue of Lucy Wilde in the movie Despicable Me 2. She's about to be deployed to Australia, and she says, Well, it's not definite yet. Still figuring it out. Already been working on my accent. And in an Australian accent, she says, Wallaby, Didgeridoo, and Hugh Jackman. And that's the answer. Hugh Jackman, the actor who is uh, Wolverine, and also mentioned by Lucy Wilde, has had six basal cell carcinomas, five of them on his nose. And each time, he has gone to social media to let people know that he's had these basal cell carcinomas. So this is an example of celebrities doing something to really help public health. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so there's all kinds of pictures of him on the Internet with Band-Aids on his nose. He says he's not afraid to do it. It's not a big thing. And he's had Moe's surgery, which is happens to be my subspecialty. Yes, here I am back in my wheelhouse again.
1: I think half of our listeners are thinking that's pretty interesting, and the other half are just trying to figure out why you know this. <laughs> yes, why do I know
0: it? Well, that's not really important. It's important <laughs> to keep them wondering. What is important <laughs> is let's move on to our Lineker for the Laity uh, segment. We have with us Dr. Jeff White from Louisiana. 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 He's a cardiologist. He's the chair of an ethics committee for a large hospital system. He's also the chair of the Board of Counselors for the Louisiana State Medical Association and a longtime member of the American Medical Association. And he's going to tell us something important about what the AMA is considering. Jeff, welcome to Dr. Doctor.
3: Well, thank you. And thank you for having me.
0: This year, 2018, the American Medical Association is reconsidering its position on physician-assisted suicide. And you wrote an article in the May 2018 issue of the Lineker Quarterly about this. Can you please lay out for our listeners exactly what's going on?
3: Well, yes, thank you. So it's important to know that the AMA, the American Medical Association, has been involved in commenting on the morality uh, or lack of morality of physician-assisted suicide for many years. And back in 1993, Dr. Jack Kevorkian was promoting assisted suicide around the country. And in that year, the American Medical Association first took its policy, formally stating that they uh, felt that that was fundamentally incompatible with the physician's role as healer. That has been the policy of the American Medical Association ever since, from then until now. Uh, It has undergone several uh, reaffirmations over the years. Uh, But just recently, uh, forces within the AMA have asked that the AMA review the policy with the thought that they might uh, change it, uh, that they might take the AMA to a position of neutrality on the issue, or might soften the position of the AMA condemning physician-assisted suicide. And that has been the subject of intense study by an AMA council and an intense debate uh, at the AMA meeting just this June.
0: Now uh, Jeff, this in, in this show we try to look at the world through a Catholic lens, but what principles does the AMA use when it is determining ethical principles?
3: The, the AMA um, relies on uh, principles that uh, basically would found in the AMA Code of Ethics, and that is that the physician has a professional responsibility uh, to the good of the patient Physician should not act in the physician's own self interest. Uh, the physician should uh, do no harm. The physician should seek to relieve suffering, provide healing. And the position of the AMA against physician assisted suicide flows from those principles the idea that a physician would, with, with forethought, provide to a suffering patient a lethal dose of drug in order that the patient could commit suicide is really not consistent with those fundamental moral underpinnings of medical practice.
0: And you and the Louisiana State Medical Association formally asked the AMA to reaffirm this teaching recently, did you not?
3: We did do that, yes. Uh, We uh, uh, put in what is uh, technically termed a resolution to that effect in 2016 to ask that the AMA simply reaffirm that uh, principle There was a counter-resolution put in by the Oregon Medical Association in that same meeting that asked that the AMA study the policy with the idea of taking it to neutrality. Uh, There was debate on that, and uh, basically the uh, AMA House of Delegates, which works much like a Congress, um, decided to opt for study. And so that study began. It was commissioned by the Council on Ethical and Judicial Affairs, uh, which has the responsibility to examine these types of ethical issues for the AMA uh, and with a report uh, to be due back uh, and after two years of study the council brought that report back this spring and that report was put up for adoption in the June meeting uh, and that led to the pitch debate that was had.
0: And were you there in June? Oh yes. So tell us what happened on the, the, the delegates floor when this was happening?
3: Sure. So the, the first thing that happened is that the report uh, underwent review by a committee. Uh, so any item of business that the AMA House of Delegates considers first goes to a committee. That committee hears testimony, hears live testimony, and then issues a recommendation to the full House as to what should be done with the item of business. In that reference committee, there were long lines, uh, and there was really impassioned testimony from both sides of this issue. But at the end of the day, the committee recommended that uh, the House of Delegates should adopt the council report, which, and the council report, by the way, said that we should hold the line and reaffirm the existing AMA policy. Hmm. Uh, So we went into the House of Delegates with a formal recommendation. Uh, not only from the council itself, but from the reference committee that took debate on the council report, that the AMA should adopt the report and reaffirm its opposition uh, to physician-assisted suicide.
0: And the delegates did what?
3: So the report was then brought up as an item of business, and the delegates opened debate on the matter. Um, And uh, basically, the California Medical Association Uh, put forward a motion to uh, return the report for further study as they felt that it did not reflect, um, the times. Um, and there was a debate on that and, um, the vote of the delegates was to return the report to the council for further study. There was no other specific instruction, but just that the, um, the report should be revisited, uh, for further, uh, Further work
1: So Jeff, with your many years of experience within the AMA, I mean do you have a sense of how this goes when it comes back next June at the annual meeting assuming that it does?
3: It actually may come as early as November. Um, the, the council spent two years of intense study mm. uh, on this. The council uh, had open forums. they heard from numerous constituencies. They received thousands of emails. Uh, reviewed the world's literature on this, um, and, uh, and gave a very um, thorough report on the issue. Not just that the AMA uh, policy against assisted suicide be reaffirmed, but that other important issues be addressed. Uh, clarity in language, you call it what it is. It's not aid in dying, it's assisted suicide. The fact that there is a real slippery slope, that if you approve this, it can lead to other things that are even worse, such as uh, active euthanasia. Uh, they recommended, they recognized that they are what they called irreconcilable moral differences between the two sides, and that because of that, a neutral position is not possible for the AMA. And that if the AMA were to a, take a neutral position, that would be a de facto endorsement of the practice. So it was a very good, very thorough report with a very clean recommendation and um, there are um, many who think that CJU will stand by that report, uh, CJU being the acronym for the Council uh, on Ethical and Judicial Affairs, and that the report, though it may have some minor modification, will in substance stand when brought back around again.
0: What would happen if the House of Delegates votes against it?
3: Uh, it's, there are three possibilities for the House of Delegates on a, on a council report. It can either accept the report, it can send the report back for further study, or it can reject the report. Outright rejection of a seizure report is very rare in the annals of AMA history. I cannot recall that it's ever been done.
0: So this sending it back could go on ad infinitum?
3: It could. Uh, there have certainly been issues on which seizure reports have been sent back multiple times, um, and um, all the while the makeup of the council changes Uh, although the terms are long uh, they are staggered so that there are new members coming onto the council uh, every year and so in, in essence it's a different council that hears it or that reviews it every time it comes back and so in the past when reports have gone back and back and back ultimately they've come to some presentation of a report that the House finds acceptable.
0: What would be
1: the problem if the AMA changed to neutral on this subject? What, in in a sense, endorsing the idea of physician-assisted suicide. What's that look like for not just Catholic physicians and their patients, but for American medicine?
3: Well, if you think about what neutrality says, it's, it's like any other major moral issue. It'd be like saying, well, you know, I'm I'm neutral on the issue of child abuse. Um, <laughs> you know, it, 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 you just can't go there. And
1: it's sort of like the Joe action. Biden position on abortion, isn't it?
3: You just can't. <laughs> you can't be neutral on some of these issues. You're, and if you say that you're neutral, then you're tacitly endorsing it. And that's that is the case with position-assisted suicide. So for the AMA to to take a neutral position would be to say to the world that uh, the uh, the voice The putative voice for american physicians does not have the moral courage to stand up and say that a doctor should not with intent give to a patient who's expressed a wish to die a lethal dose of drugs Uh, that uh, you know would be used as fodder in numerous legislative debates in state houses throughout the united states would very likely strengthen the hand of those who would like to see this practice legalized throughout our country uh, and would potentially weaken us uh, in ultimate court challenges. Jeff, uh, thank you for being
0: with us. And thank you to all our listeners for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. For more information on the CMA, find us on our website, cathmed.org. C A T H M E D dot
1: This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. We'll be signing off from the Dr. Doctor, Doctor Show. Till next time, remember your medical decisions could have profound consequences. Choose wisely, choose Catholic.